0: This is one of my favorite times of year. It's one of my favorite times of year to be a part of the church, to be a part of Christ's body. The, the songs, the, the poignant scriptures read by faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, the fellowship that is, if possible, just a little bit more sweet, the preparation of decorations going up, the joy. The memories, both memories that are in the past and also memories that are being made currently. So, as we are turning to our passage this morning, if you'll turn to Psalm 40, let's just address a few questions you might have as we open up into our Advent time, our Advent season, our sermon series here through this time. Why the Psalms? We're in Psalms 40 today. Isn't it Christmas time? Why aren't we in the Gospels? Why aren't we looking at those accounts of Christ's birth? Why are we not maybe in the prophets looking at how everything was pointing towards Christ as He fulfills every word of the Father as the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us? Well, the Psalms are fundamentally about Christ, Jesus, after his resurrection, he taught his disciples to understand all of Scripture, saying in Luke 2, 24, 44 that these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. An early church father from Carthage, located in northern Africa, his name was Tertullian, he had this to say about David in the Psalms. He said, he sings to us of Christ, and through his voice Christ indeed also sang concerning himself. Psalms is Christ's song book, his holy inspired words put into our hearts and our mouths as we worship The content of his own song worship while he walked the earth. When he was singing, when Christ was singing in the synagogue, when he was singing, going down the street with his disciples, as he was singing, going and walking to the Mount of Olives, after they had the Last Supper, they went to the Mount of Olives and on the way, after a song, they went, he was singing the Psalms. Another question you might ask, what is Advent? Advent. Most of us have celebrated Advent in one way or another. Maybe, um, maybe it's the Christmas season to you. Maybe it's, uh, you're remembering the reason for the season. Or maybe your experience with Advent has been going to Walmart and seeing the calendars, the pop culture themed Advent calendars that flow to shelves at this time of year. And in uh, one of the text threads I'm in this week with some of the men here in the church, uh, it yielded an ad for a Godzilla-themed Advent calendar, just in time for Christmas. Right, so maybe that's all the understanding, or maybe that's where the only time you've heard the word Advent. Here at Seaford Baptist, we recognize this uh, period of Advent as the four Sundays. Uh, before Christmas Eve, as the Advent season. The Advent season. Now, if you look at a liturgical calendar, or go down the street to maybe our Presbyterian brothers, and, or see a liturgical calendar elsewhere, it's, it technically starts next week, but we as Good Baptists are doing what we want, and just celebrating a little longer. But what's the difference between the Christmas season and the Advent season? Now, while the Christmas season rightly looks forward to the celebration of Christ's birth with a little extra thought given to that reason for the season, Advent is specifically a time where we remember the waiting. So if you Google the definition of Advent, you'll get the arrival of an important person, thing, or event. We're looking forward to the arrival of Christ, remembering that God's people have experienced prolonged times of waiting throughout the course of history. His promised work and deliverance has been in various stages of development from before the foundations of the world were laid, Ephesians 1-4 tells us. While doling out the curses of the fall, Adam and Eve were promised promised in Genesis 3 that their seed would crush Satan. Adam, a pagan man... Chosen and called out of a pagan land was promised a large portion of land and a multitude of descendants, 25 years before he even saw a child from his wife, Sarah, who the promise line was coming through. But even with those promises, 25 years, he died with a field and a son to his name, not a nation. Abraham was waiting David, the man after God's own heart, was promised his throne while he was still yet a lad in the fields tending smelly sheep as the lowly youngest of his father's sons. And we see this time and theme of waiting time and again throughout Scripture, leading up to an elongated period of waiting, a 400-year silence between the last word of prophecy and Christ's birth. During the Advent season, we ponder the waiting, knowing that Christ has come, fulfilling the greatest promise that God ever made, knowing that Christ will come again. We experience the waiting, the anticipation that God's people have been living from Adam's fall up into the present. And while we ponder this waiting, four themes readily present themselves. We have our... Our candles that represent those themes. There's the expectant hope, the steadfast enduring love of a just and holy God, the boundless joy of seeing God's covenant promises fulfilled, and the contented peace that Christ offers, surpassing all understanding in all circumstances. But today, today we consider hope. And before we assign any definitions, let's look through the lens of Scripture. So if you are able, I'm going to ask you to please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word as we look at Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offerings and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book that is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation Let those be appalled because of their shame, who say of me, who say to me, Aha! Aha! But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord! But as for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. Father, we've read your word. And Father, sprinkled in with the waiting and the hope that is uh, just bursting forth, we are reminded of the hopelessness apart from you. As we parse through these words, Father, may you illuminate them. May you make them plain. May you help us to comprehend and understand the might of your hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So, we're back to definitions. This passage paints hope as being an expectant reality. Of salvation. It's not a fingers crossed behind our back, uh, I, wanna, I sure hope I get a puppy for Christmas kind of hope. <clears throat> if you go back and read the previous three chapters of Psalms, you will find and see that they, they have established this tension of waiting. Verse 1 in chapter 40 here begins with intensifying that tension to a breaking point. By using the Hebrew word for wait in quick succession. Kavah, kavah. Literally translating, waiting, I waited. We have it translated here for us, I waited patiently. But he's saying, waiting, I waited. And it paints the picture of waiting in patient and and expectance. We see that tension relieved in the only way that it possibly can be. The Lord acts. He inclines his head. He hears our cry. This is Advent hope. The Lord's actions shatter the psalmist's waiting like a pinata at a four-year-old's birthday party. Exposing the reality of its contents to a world that is jaded to joy. The reality of God's deliverance first gives us hope in our position. Christ's coming paved uh, the way for us to be lifted out of our destruction and sin. The picture the psalmist gives here is one of him standing in a cistern rapidly filling with water. It's a hopeless scenario. The words that he used uh, translate the pit of roaring or a rushing tumult. He is weighed down in the mud while drowning is imminent and he's crying out. But at the same time, while he's crying out, how is he waiting? Waiting, I waited patiently. Waiting, waiting, waiting. And how does he go on waiting? How does he stomach the waiting? Because he knows that his God will act. God has promised and God will deliver. And the Lord does more than just pull his people out of their destruction. He sets them firmly. After he pulls them out, he sets them firmly on the rock of Christ. Their steps are secure, never having fear of falling back into the pit ever again. Their path is straight and clearly marked by the guardrails of the word. And he leads them to rejoice. So much so that the psalmist breaks into song right then and there. A song that draws attention and points back not to the deliverance, but to the deliverer. The security, the surety, the praise found in his position ends with a blessing that draws our attention back to Psalm 1. In Psalm 1, it begins with blessed are the right, are, is the godly. B- blessed is the godly. And ends with verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So if the Lord is the trust of those He has delivered. If the Lord is the hope of the righteous, then destruction is the way of the wicked. We see in this psalm, those who go astray after lies. So what what lies are we apt to chase? The hopeless lie of self-sufficiency. The hopeless lie of idolatry in any shape or size. We cannot serve God obediently while reserving a portion of ourselves off in a corner for another master. Moses worked this exact same message into his song that he taught the Israelites to pass down after generation to generation in, Exodus, uh, in Deuteronomy 32, 35 through 38. Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. "...for the Lord will vindicate His people and have compassion on His servants. When He sees that their power is gone and that there is none remaining, bond or free, then He will say, Where are their gods, the rock in which they took refuge? Who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection." So, on the contrary, as the Lord lifts us out of the mire and puts our feet where we can traverse securely, those who go astray after lies find their feet slipping. Idols offer no protection, no protection. Family offers no protection. Money offers no protection. Possessions offer no protection. Social status, political party, occupation. All the good deeds that we have to offer offer no protection. So don't go after lies, church. Don't be fooled into the age-old con of self-sufficiency. Remember that your hope comes from the source of your deliverance. Your hope, our hope, In Christ comes from our position firmly planted in Christ. Finding hope in our position leads us to find hope in God's provision. Verses 5 through 8 echo the sentiment expressed in 1 Samuel 15. This is where uh, King Saul has gone and conquered enemies that God has told him to completely devote to destruction, wipe them out, wipe them off the face of the earth, Take nothing for yourselves. Keep nothing. But he did not follow the Lord's instructions of destruction to the letter. Instead, he allowed his men to plunder livestock and possessions and took the enemy leader captive. So when Samuel comes along, the the priest of God, the judge of God, the one who's coming along, the mouthpiece of God, Samuel... Uh, Saul passes the blame onto the people that he leads. He doesn't take it upon himself as, as the leader. And he excuses this, regard, this disregard of a direct command by saying, Well, look, we kept these best because we're going to offer a thanksgiving offering to the Lord. And Samuel said in 1 Samuel 15 through 23 Has the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? As in obedience, in the as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as the iniquity of idolatry, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. God doesn't want to sacrifice. God doesn't need a meal. He wants obedience. This shows how and how David speaks of what God delights in in Psalm 40. He says that God has given him an open ear. If you have an ESV Bible, you'll see it in the footnotes, the, uh, a translation of that, a very clear translation if you take it from the Hebrew, and it says, ears have you dug for me. Now, this goes beyond the simple explanation of God creating our ear, God creating this wonderful, miraculous mechanism that allows us to hear, digging out that ear canal and making sure that we have access to hearing. And it goes back to the connotation that the Hebrew culture had of slavery, of servitude, Most slaves, especially Hebrew brothers and sisters, went into service willingly to settle a debt. They lived, served, and often came to love their masters. So when they had served their masters in fulfilling their debt, they were free to go. However, the way they came into the service was the way they had to go out of that service. With whatever possessions they had, whatever relationships they were in. And God in his law made a provision for slaves who desired to continue in service after the allotted service period ended. Let's look at Exodus 21, 1 through 6. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years, and in the seventh he shall go free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife, and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door, <coughs> or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an owl, and he shall be his slave forever. Now, I recently took my daughters to get their ears pierced upon their, upon their request, and that was a nerve-wracking experience. I, seeing the angst in their little faces as they're preparing those little punch guns to punch through those earlobes. And there's care that's going to be going on for those little lobes for months and months and months just to make sure infection doesn't set in, to make sure they don't heal in and grow in as the Lord has once again so miraculously made our bodies to do. This is next level. This is an owl in a doorpost through your earlobe. But because you love your master... Because you love your family, you say, I want to remain in servitude. Ears have you dug for me as the psalmist saying, I do not wish to be independent. I do not wish to be free. I wish to continue in your service, Lord, because I know that I will never be able to satisfy the debt that I owe. God does not find the light in ritualistic sacrifice. Now, he commanded these sacrifices for the sake of obedience, knowing that even the faithful among his people desired to work out their salvation, to show their faithfulness. He gave his people an act to perform, not to save them, but to remind them of their need for him, to keep their hope alive alive. As they waited and waited. We don't find hope in our freedom. In our independence. We have no act by which we can do to deliver ourselves. But we can live in obedience to the Lord's commands as we cast our eyes to Christ. We find hope in the provision of the Father made through the Son to satisfy his just wrath for eternity. In this passage, these verses are quoted directly in Hebrews 10, verses 4 through 10, showing how the message of psalm, this psalm is clearly messianic, having to do with the Messiah, with Christ. So let's turn to Hebrews 10, 4 through 10. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, quoting Psalms 40, "...sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desire desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings these are offered according to the law then he added behold i have come to do your will he does away with the first order and to establish the second and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of jesus christ once for all Did you catch the important word that the author of Hebrew switched out? We just talked about ears have you dug for me, how we are to serve the Lord with our entire being, but as the psalmist is liking it it to servitude, the ear being representative of the whole body in the service of his God, Hebrews says, a body you have prepared for me. This is Christ talking. Sure, we have a body prepared for us to be obedient, but Christ, the Word of God becoming flesh, a body was prepared for him. A body was given him so that he could live out his obedience to the Father. When God gave Jesus, he gave us himself. He didn't simply just add uh, an Old Testament mighty deed through sending another prophet, another priest, another king, another judge, he gave us himself. And this is why his deeds are wondrously incomparable. Because he in his boundless and infinite glory is the blessing. No matter how much we know of his wondrous deeds, And thoughts towards us, there's always more to know. This hope in in God's promises transforms our worship. We sacrifice ourselves, our desires, our pursuits, our preferences, all to follow God faithfully. Because once again, Christ steps in and alters our expectations. It's not by the blood of bulls and goats and lambs and doves that we are saved. These never truly saved. It is by the blood of the perfect Son of God who is born after a millennia of promise. Obedient, listening, fully devoted ears play out through the service of an entire body. God God may have dug our ears out, but he provided a body for his son. Christ came in the flesh and took that body to the cross. He laid his body in the pit of our destruction, and he quieted the roar of God's wrath. Matthew Henry addresses the sacrificial sacrificial system and how it points to Christ in this way. Even while the law concerning them was in full force, it might be said, God did not desire them nor accept them for their own sake. They could not take away the guilt of sin by satisfying God's justice. The life of a sheep, which is so much inferior in value to that of a man, could not pretend to be an equivalent, much less an expedient, to preserve the honor of God's government and laws and repair the injury done to that honor by the sin of man. They could not take away the terror of sin by pacifying the conscience, nor the power of sin by sanctifying the nature. It was impossible. What there was in them that was valuable resulted from the reference to Jesus Christ, of whom they were types. Shadows indeed, but shadows of good things to come, and trials of the faith and obedience of God's people, of their obedience to the law and their faith in the gospel. But the substance must come, which is Christ, who must bring that glory to God and that grace to man, which it was impossible for those sacrifices to ever do. God provided this. And our hope in his provision leads us into expressing hope in our praise. David, after waiting patiently for deliverance and looking to God's provision, he makes known the fact that his prayers have been answered. He doesn't keep it to himself. He shares it with the entire congregation. We've already seen this theme in verse 3. As we worship, we cannot keep God's faithfulness and salvation hidden within our hearts. Our hope drives our worship. And then our worship drives our discipleship and our evangelism. Because we see the fruit of God's people waiting, because the hope of our waiting is sure... It spills into the songs we sing. The prayers we pray. The interactions with brothers and sisters around this room after the service is ending. The interactions we have with the community as we go out to lunch after church or go through our week of work coming off off the holiday weekend. It is an outpouring. Our hope is an outpouring. If you truly have hope, and the hope of Jesus Christ welling up within you. You're not going to be able to damn that up. It is going to burst forth. We can't restrain our lips. Isaiah 61:10 says, "I will greatly rejoice in the Lord; my soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness." as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with jewels as we rejoice in the salvation that Christ has clothed us in clothed us in not just applied to us the salvation that he has clothed us in this altering of our appearance our hope finds expression in our worship And as that happens, we also are reminded that we have hope in God's preservation. As we do not restrain our lips, he does not restrain his mercies. We are preserved. We are sustained by the very steadfast love and faithfulness that we've been praising him for. Preserved from what, though? God protects us from surrounding evil. He protects us from our enemies who want to take pot shots at us while we're down, saying, Aha, aha. He shields us from Satan, the ancient accuser, when we have fallen into sin. And, brother and sister, God protects us from ourselves. We oftentimes are our own worst enemies. Our sins are overwhelming. We may shrug our shoulders at sin from moment to moment as we're walking through life and committing them. Am I? Oh, that was a little white lie. But if we were to really pay attention, really, and I mean really pay attention, and tally our sins over the course of 24 hours, the results would be astonishing. Embellishing the truth. Check. Check casting a lustful glance check was unjustly angry with my spouse or children check and i'm only talking about the the short bit of time that it took for us to get out of bed and come to church this morning we see that it really quickly adds up like calories in my fitness pal like sense spent out of a budget, it quickly, quickly builds up. And this isn't even counting the fact that, we, that for every sin we commit, either knowingly or unknowingly, that comes with the charge of the opposite. When we neglect to do the right thing, we also do the wrong thing. And if you're overwhelmed at this point, that's not even the start of it. Because if we look at James chapter 2, verse 10... We are told that even if we're faithful in the majority, if we fail in the least, which we do, which we have already talked about doing, we are guilty of breaking all of it. We may be out of the pit with the guardrails of God's word up, but we are far from invincible. But God's mercies are unrestrained towards his children. Philippians 1.6 We have hope that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. There's our hope again. We continue to wait on full deliverance. And finally... The last two verses lead us to find hope in our poverty. We've seen throughout Psalm 40 that we are in desperate need of deliverance. So, David's final reference to himself is that he is poor and needy, he has nothing to bring to the table but love for his salvation. But that's not his final reference to God either. It's not simply, I love my salvation. It's not just what God has done for him. After pointing out his poverty, he finds hope in his help and his deliverer. How often do we focus on our salvation? How often do we solely find hope in our salvation? we, like David, have to keep perspective. We can't just hope in our position because even our secure position is one of desperate need. These last two verses take us back through the entire psalm again, pointing to the hope of God's provision and preservation. And in the midst of all that hope, We are back to Advent. We are back to waiting. So what do we do in our waiting church? Waiting can seem tiresome, can't it? We feel useless. We feel helpless. And we don't like that. But waiting is not the same as inactivity. While these bodies may be idle, may, while the, it outwardly appears that we are idle, the heart and the mind are to be hard at work in the work of faith, trusting God that He is sovereignly in control, trusting in His wisdom, trusting in His timing. And as David was a foreshadow of Christ, a thousand years before his first coming, we are to be shadows of Christ until he comes again. As David points backwards, uh, sorry, as David points forward to Christ, we are to point back to Christ with our lives and always keeping our focus on the grand horizon where our Savior will come again to rule and to reign. This is our hope church when david and we join david in looking to the past and to the future for hope in the present we wait our hope is a confident assurance that christ has come he has finished his work of salvation And I'm going to leave you with one more quote. Jonathan Edwards put it this way. Though many things had been done in the affair of redemption, the millions of sacrifices had been offered, yet nothing was done to purchase redemption before Christ's incarnation. No part of the purchase was made. No part of the price was offered until now. But as soon as Christ was incarnate, the purchase began. And the whole time of Christ's humiliation to the morning that he rose from the dead was taken up in this purchase. Then the purchase was entirely and completely finished. As nothing was done before Christ's incarnation, so nothing was done after his resurrection to purchase redemption for men. Nor will there ever be anything more done. For all eternity. This is our hope. I'm gonna invite our musicians back to the platform to lead us. And as they come, take a moment to evaluate your position. Are you hopeless listening to all that's been said and wondering what next? Do you feel as if you were slipping your way through life? Are you crying out from the mouth of an open grave? Are you constantly trying to do the right thing but finding that it simply isn't enough? If so, don't leave today without talking to somebody. Pastor Michael, myself, Deacons, please raise your hands. And deacons' wives as well, please. Thank you. These folks are ready, willing, and able to answer any of your questions about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they are happy to do so. So seek one of us out. Don't leave this room hopeless, don't leave this room wondering. Well, how how do I have this hope? We have this hope through Christ Jesus, through believing that he is the promised son of God, by trusting him as our savior and our Lord. And we are happy to talk to you more about that. So church, this Advent season, we have hope as we join the psalmist in waiting as well. Waiting as we wait, patiently waiting, expectantly waiting. But church, our salvation has already come. We don't have to wait for a Messiah to make a way for us, to make a way for us to be restored with God and have restoration. That work is complete. But we do wait for deliverance from this world. We wait for the day that Christ, our life, appears in all of his majestic splendor and glory. Not humbly embracing a stable as he did the first time, but regally claiming a throne. Finding all our hope in our position in Christ, God's provision of salvation, as we give voice to our hope in praise, in God's preservation, and finding hope in our poverty. Let's close with one last passage from Hebrews. Speaking to our promised hope as we patiently wait for its fulfillment. Hebrews ten nineteen through 23 Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful let's pray God you are faithful father in our hopelessness in the day-to-day walk through life as bills are not being met as relationships Fail us in what we think they should be in the job promotion that we're passed over for, where we want to despair and just pour out hopelessness all over the place. Father, may we find hope in the only source of true hope that there is. May we cast our eyes to the cross, may we cast our eyes to Christ who lived the perfect life that we never could who was sacrificed as this psalm said as the one who did not want his will done but your will done as he died defeating our sin and covering our sin before you clothing us in your righteousness as he rose from the grave defeating death so that we could live eternally and have communion with you May we find true hope in the waiting, in waiting for your son's return. May we be found in him at that time. We thank you, Father, and we continue to look forward to this time of recognized waiting of Advent. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.